so after September 11th happened, you know, I had every platform, every accessibility to the bottle, and um, and just life just got, life just got really tough, Matt. It really did. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. In honor of today's release date, which is 9-11, I wanted to re-release one more episode. We've been doing that throughout the summer. We were going to end before Labor Day, but today just happened to fall on 9-11, and I had to bring you my friend, my past guest, Matt Long. He is FDNY, Ironman triathlete, came back from an incredible crash really was told he was going to die. You're going to hear all about it. Like we always say with these re-releases, please disregard any references to time or dates. This was recorded a while ago, but I think you're still going to find that Matt's heroic story is just as important today, and 9-11 weighed into his narrative quite a bit uh, as he was involved that day working as a firefighter, and uh, his story is just incredible, so I hope you enjoy it. Here he is, Matt Long. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. My guest today is Matt Long, and I am fired up. Matty happens to be an old friend of mine from my New York City bartending days. Uh, he was one of my brother's partners, owners at the bar Turtle Bay Grill and Lounge, where I used to sling drinks. So this one is personal, but Matt's comeback story is the quintessential 10,000 nose legend, and it's been documented by the likes of HBO Real Sports twice and Runner's World Magazine, among many others. Matt received the CBS Arate Award for Courage in Sports and was named one of the world's 25 fittest athletes in 2010. That was five years after he was nearly killed when he was run over by a bus while forced to ride his bike to his firefighting job during the New York City transit strike in December of 2005. Firefighter, marathon runner, Iron Man, real-life hero. If you don't find inspiration from this one, check your pulse. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Long. Where are you right now in your life? Because people are about to hear your story, which is amazing, just unbelievable story of overcoming the odds but um it's been there's a lot of press on it you've been on hbo real sports a few times you've been uh, tons of press more than that I, you know you could tell me but people can google you and and hear the story but um where are you now i know you're working is it orange theory that you're working with right now what are you doing now yeah uh, currently i'm i live in rockaway beach queens new york um and I, I am, I'm fully invested in the fitness industry. I think that that's a, a huge part of my story. So um, I was um, fortunate enough to get involved with a group, small group, and we opened. Uh, we are opening three Orange Theory Fitness studios. Um, they're all going to be located in Connecticut. And um, you know, I just, I just. I, I thought it was the right fit for me because it's the way I trained. It's, it's I, I I like to call it fitness done right. 
you know, you're training with your heart rate monitor. You're, you're, you're training within your zone. You could be in the room with a world-class athlete. You could be in the room with someone that needs to lose three, 300 pounds. Everyone is doing the same thing, but it's individualized by their heart rate. So, um, you know, that's how I trained before my accident, all for Ironman and, and marathon running, and that's what saved my life. Wow. And so you're also, in addition to that, don't you also train some pretty serious um, high school athletes that have gone on to play D1 sports? I, I feel like on Instagram, I'm always seeing your clients that are, uh, maybe you were working with them from when they were sophomores in high school and now they're playing D1 football or basketball. What could you explain a little of that? <clears throat> yeah. So, um, uh, where I live at home, I turned a small little garage into a, into a gym. So I called the garage gym, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it's very, very and, original. Uh, very original, very original. Nothing fancy there. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was, I was fortunate enough that a couple of parents that I went to school with or people that I knew had asked me to, uh, assist with their kids that were growing up. And, you know, one of them, yes, plays his tight end at BC, um, sophomore. Um, beast of a kid and, and a good kid. So what I, what I like to think that I, um, well, what happens in there, I'm, I'm not taking credit for his level of play by any means. Um, but I like to think what happens that I become a, um, not only do I become someone who, who teaches them how to, um, train their body properly, but I become someone, uh, who likes to give them be the, be the voice on their shoulder when things can go bad in life. You know, where we live in Rockaway beach and it's, it's, it's all over the world, but where we live in Rockaway beach, it's, it's especially in the winter time, things get boring and kids just look for outlets to do stupid things, whether it's get involved in drinking too early or drugs too early. So I'd like to think that some of the kids that have come to work out with me, um, the, the football player, his name's Ray Martin, number 86 at Boston college, tight end. And then I have another kid who's, uh, who's finishing his plebe year at the U.S. Naval Academy. And he came to me when he was 14 and told me he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Wow. You know, so I've never seen a kid, uh, more determined and more focused than that kid, especially 14. Um, hey, and I'm 51 years old, so I, I'm, I'm more than triple his age. And, uh, and it's great because he pushes me to stay young and, and vibrant. And we, we, we go at it head to head all the time. By the way, anybody who's listening, so Matt just said he's 51 years old, which I forget because, you know, if you ever have excuses about, uh, you know, getting into shape, just go look at, at some of the stuff about Matt Long. Um, he's 51. He's in, in incredible shape. Not only that, wh the, what you'll hear about this devastating accident that almost killed him, um, there's just, there are just no excuses. You seem to have no excuses, and yet, because I know your story pretty well, I know um, there were times when you were in a really dark place where you did have excuses and you were not – you just – you know, naturally so, after almost being killed, you were not able to get back up and, and do what you had to do. <clears throat> I kind of want to go back – way back to a little bit of your upbringing in, in Brooklyn because you, from when I met you, which was long before the accident, you just, you, you've got a, a grit to you that's, um, that's impressive and it's kind of, you're, you're a guy who rallies spirit and you always have been since I met you. Um, so could you talk a little bit about your childhood, all your brothers and sisters and your parents and 
all your upbringing. Yeah, I, yeah. sure. I mean, that, like, let's face it. They, uh, I was, I'm lucky. You know, I'm lucky enough to, to grow up in a big, supportive family. Um, and I, I would think my personality, as each individual brother and sister's personality uh, is different, um, we helped each other form it. So I'm number two of nine. There's seven boys and two girls in my family. Um, dad had a small ice cream parlor that, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, we never knew the things we know now. Just sitting down at dinner talking, and, and mom tells us how there were times when uh, it was extremely difficult to put food on the table. There was times when mom and dad didn't eat dinner so that the nine children could eat dinner. Um, but we never knew that. So, you know, they sheltered it from us. They they, they did the best they could. Um, but I, I like to tell people that my competitive nature or uh, was started at the dinner table. Yeah. You know, the okay. first one in the middle of the table gets, it's like the, uh, the you know, the chicks in the, in the nest. The, the, the weakest chick gets, the less food and then gets eventually gets kicked out of the nest. Yeah. So the other, so the others can thrive. Um, so I like to tell people that's how comp- my competitive nature was formed at the dinner table. And if you look at our family chart, Eddie number nine, who I affectionately call him, is, uh, is the smallest. So I guess he got the, <laughs> the less of the vitamins and nutrients from, from dinner growing up. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, that's definitely how my, I think my competitive nature, uh, was was developed and i think having seven brothers uh, not that the sisters uh don't throw shots at us now but growing up you're always jousting with each other whether it's wrestling or or verbally wrestling picking on each other you know building character um and what i like to tell people is that that um I think one of my successes, like you just said, that I had a way of like firing up a crowd or, or enthusiasm amongst the crowd or, you know, just bringing, uh, bringing a, just a, 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 like the, the whole circle would just go up another step. Yeah. Um, I, I like to think of it and I like to tell my kids now, I tell them, I said, look, I've been told and I realize that I have a, a unique way of laughing at myself. I and agree with if, that. If, yeah. And you know me, Matthew, you know me for a couple of years, you know, and so if you're able to laugh at yourself, it it just brings a whole nother element to the conversation, to the circle and and everything is okay. Not not much, not much bothers me. I mean, I've, you've seen me fly off the handle too, but you know, my skin's pretty thick and I have a unique way of laughing. I mean, I think that's my, uh, my mechanism. And when someone wants to come into a circle and, and try to be the voice and try to control things and, point fingers or I don't want to use the word bully, but, but you know, just direct derogatory comments at someone. And if that target laughs at themselves, you just defeated his attack or her attack. Yeah. And the whole, the whole dynamic of the circle changes. So I think that my, my childhood gave me the sense of competitiveness and, it, and the fact that I had seven brothers growing up with constantly picking on each other, you know, doing things kids do. Uh, we, you know, we could feel the baseball team at any point without friends. So we, we, we had it there all the time. And uh, I, I think that that is a quality that uh, that I try to push to my children. I try to be unoffendable. Laugh at yourself. Yeah. And you no longer become a target for anything that's out there in the world. But I think that's one of my one of the traits I got from my brothers and sisters and my big family. Well, I'm just thinking now, even as you're talking, it's interesting when you think about your family unit and how big it was and seven, you know, Seven brothers, two sisters—that's what it is. Or it's seven of you, including you. 
right? No, no. Or, nine total. Seven nine total. Boys, uh, six, yeah, seven, six yeah, brothers so, and two yeah, sisters. Six yeah. brothers and two sisters. So you, you have that, and then throughout your life, you seem to have sought out groups of, you know, you went, you worked uh, in a firehouse, which is a bunch of guys all together. You were walk-on at, at Iona, um, mm. playing basketball. Uh, you had your training crew when you started to get into um, marathons and then triathlons. And you, you always, you kind of gravitate to a group and yet you seem to be a leader within that group. Um, but let's talk about, I don't know if you want to share this as a great story that I know about you, uh, when you were a open. kid with your dad, I'm an Is open, it, I'm an open book, Matthew. Let's lay it out. Okay, you're an open book, but I don't think, <laughs> but I don't think this was in the book. But I think I just uh-huh. know it, which is the story of when when you got beaten up when you were a kid and you came home. Do you remember this? Mm. One? Yes, 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 yes. I, I I I didn't get beat up, but I got smacked uh, pretty good in the face, enough to leave a welt. And, and after school, we would go to my dad's ice cream parlor that he had. That's where our stop was after school before we went home. And, uh, yeah, he questioned the uh, the wealth on my face. So I had told him, you know, this kid that uh, just transferred into school, whatever. Um, you know, we were, we were going at it pretty good, arguing, you know, picking on each other. And after school, he, you know, he said, I'll meet you, you know, in the yard. And we all met. People circled around. I was afraid of him. He smacked me. I turned around and walked away. And that didn't go over well with the with the Marine. So, so my dad my dad uh, took me to his house, rang the bell, and uh, told us that the other gentleman, the other kid's father, you know what had happened. And he goes, basically, you know, my son doesn't walk away, so let's give him five minutes. And we went at it for about, you know, maybe it felt like five minutes, but it was probably a minute and a half, not even. Yeah, and uh, two dads broke broke it up, and my, myself and Mark, his name was Mark, became good friends. The rest of our grammar school career. That's great. I mean, it's it's so funny because that's you know one of these stories that's uh, not politically correct these days, and people could even be hearing it now and go like, "Oh my God, really? They did this?" But it's it it really speaks to your character and what you you know. First of all, the fact you guys ended up being friends because there's a mutual respect and you realize, Mm -hmm. you know, probably, probably nobody even remembers what the fight was about in the first place anyway. And it's just kind of facing up to your fears and, and standing up for yourself. And, um, you know, when you think about facing up to your fears, there are, um, not a lot of people who have been through what you've been through. Um, could you talk let's even before we get to the the accident and everything let's just mm-hmm. go go to um pre 911 you're living in New York City you're um you have a couple of bars that you're running right you're yeah a firefighter at a house in Harlem um what you know, you don't have to go in depth. I don't want to push you anywhere emotionally, but nine eleven. Could you just talk about the takeaway? Because I feel like your your life veered, in a way, veered toward fitness after that, or shortly after that. What was it that kind of what dime dropped for you? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let me let me just go back a little further because you you brought up the bar business and and you know, look, the title of your 
podcast is 10,000 no's. Um, you know, when I, I, I was, uh, I was an accountant for Deloitte Haskins and Sells, one of the big eight accounting firms back in 1989. And it wasn't for me. I, I, I it, it just wasn't for me. Um, so I was bartending throughout college and I started bartending in the city. Then I figured, you know, maybe this is where I need to be in this industry. Um, and I was afforded an opportunity, um, to open, uh, my first bar at, at 25 years old. And when I was doing the research on the real estate and the, the location, I was told multiple times by older people in the business, it's not a good spot. It's not a good spot. You know, you're too close to this. There's some methadone clinics by the hospital. There's this going on over there. It's not going to work. Do yourself a favor. You know, go back to accounting or, or find something else to do. And, uh, you know, of course I didn't listen. And I, I, <laughs> I was probably, yeah, shocking. I, 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 I did listen. But did, did I absorb it to say they're right and I'm, and I'm wrong? Or did I listen to them and say, hey, it just fueled my fire. It's just, I can go back four years earlier where I'm a freshman in college and I walk on, go to walk on Iona's basketball team and, and I get cut. You know, if I had listened to the coach saying, thanks very much, Matt, take care, I would have stopped playing basketball. Hmm. But I continued to work hard, went back sophomore year. And when I got cut sophomore year, I didn't listen to the coach again. I went back junior year. Finally, senior year, I played college basketball, which was one of my dreams growing up. So in the bar business, the same thing. I was told not to go to this spot, not to do this location. Don't do it. And I said, okay, I heard what they said, but I thought I had it in me to make it work. And that bar was open for 23 years. Wow. And that bar was so, third, third and long, which third and long, anybody who lived in Manhattan during that time, uh, you know, a lot of people had good times there, watched sports there. What a great neighborhood bar. And that's exactly. a great, that's a great story. Um, no. so, so now, you know, now, it, so now I'm here. I am a, a bar owner. Um, and you know, everyone thinks the grass is greener on, on when you're not doing it. Um, but I have no insurance. I have, I have no, um, you know, solid lifestyle, no longevity. Uh, that guy could have been right. It could have closed in two years. And when I was in high school, I took the fire department test alongside my brother, Jimmy. He really wanted to be a firefighter. And we were so close. I said, ah, I'll train with you, study with you, and, and we'll push each other to do the best we can on the test. Um, and, you know, two years into the bar business, I get called to, to be a New York City fireman. So I said, this is, this is just perfect. And so I have, I have a, a business that's doing well. And now I'm going to have a full-time job, salary, pension, and insurance. You know, it makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. So, so I became a fireman in 1993, right after the um, right after the World Trade Center was bombed the first time. Um, you know, and I really, as as a non-fireman, I was a civilian. I really didn't, I guess, think too much about it that time. And it wasn't as big of an event, even though I believe nine people died. I don't think it was a, as big of an event, obviously, as September 11th. But um, at September 11th, I had about uh, nine nine years on the job, and um, nine to eight years on the job, and I was working the same firehouse up in Spanish Harlem. And you're right, um, I, I I wasn't in a great place in my life, I don't think, and it just spiraled afterwards. 
You know, that, that was, that was what the dime that dropped was that, um, after September 11th, after losing so many friends, I, I hid that depression or that pain in drinking. Now I had the greatest platform in the world to do it because at that point I had uh, three bars. You know, then was where we met. You know, I, I had partnered with your brother and we had opened up a uh, Turtle Bay. Yeah. So I had third along going strong. I had Turtle Bay going strong. Uh, I'm a New York City fireman. I'm top of the world. You know, this is who's better than me living in the city. And um, so after September 11th happened, you know, I had every platform, every accessibility to, to the to the bottle, and um, and just life just life just got really tough, Matt. It really did. It was um, you know, when you when you're really happy about what you're doing in life, you, you look forward to getting up in the morning and and, and attacking it with 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 uh, vengeance and joy that no matter what went wrong, you knew you could fix it. And that was with the bars. That was with the fire department. After September 11th, that, that all went away. And then there was no joy anymore. And, you know, the, the only time I felt good is when I was drinking. Now, I'm not going to go in and say I was a alcoholic, but, uh, yeah, I, looking back at my life, I, I, I was definitely hiding things in the bottle. And, and what would you say it was just, um, I'm sure it was a lot of things, but was it, what you saw that day was it losing guys that you and I both both knew, like Mike Armstrong and Steve Mulderry. Um, was it? And I'm sure you had other firefighter brothers that you lost a lot. And was it that just the the toll, the emotional toll, or was it? Did it did it shine a light on where? That's that's you know my my question, and you talk about it a little bit in the book, but. Pre nine eleven, you know, it's late nineties. The bar, the bars are doing, and then early two thousands, the bars are doing really well. You're kind of riding high, but the sense I get in in your book, uh, the long run, by the way, if anyone wants to pick it up, um, is that you underneath all of the activity and the buzz and the success and the you know the the electricity of your life, which because you really did have this life. It, there was also a, a a certain loneliness, maybe, and a certain kind of um, you know romantically, you were kind of going out with a bunch of different girls, but you never you you had a you never had that. Like everybody else started to settle down, and you did not. And did that factor into that post nine eleven kind of slump, if you if you will. Yeah, it did. There was definitely something missing in my life, for sure. And um, like like I said earlier, I, I was fortunate enough to, to able to, if people thought it couldn't happen, I was fortunate enough type of guy with a strong enough personality that could make things happen. And maybe in business and in your careers, making something happen is really good. But in your social life and um, your personal life, forcing things to happen is not the way to go. So yes, um, I, I I was in a couple of relationships. I mean, I dated plenty of girls. Obviously, I write about it in the book. Being a little bit of a you know guy I like to to date, um, but it, it was whenever I thought it was the right girl, I, I think I forced that relationship to try and work, and that just that just didn't pan out. You I mean you had plenty of nights uh, when the ball was closed, Matt, where we sit there and just talk, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that is definitely an accurate statement that there was a a element in my life that was missing, um, and 
it didn't keep me from having fun, but you're right after September 11th. And I can tell you, there's, there's a story in the book where I talk about my friend who, who's no longer with us from a nine 11 cancer. Um, he, he was clean and sober for like 15 years at, at the point of nine 11. And we are, we're working down on the, on the at ground zero. We called it the pile. And, um, you know, it's hot. It, it, we're tired. You know, no one's happy to be there. It was just not a good place. And, you know, my friend Jimmy, older senior man, he would be telling me what to do. And then he'd be like, all right, I'll be, I'll be back. Uh, I got to go to the meeting. And I'm like, oh, okay. So there was a big banner hanging off one of the towers or one of the buildings that was still erected down there. And it said, friends of Bill meeting, you know, third floor of this building. So I'm like, what are you doing? He points up at the screen, he, up at that banner. He said, I'll, I'll be back. And uh, I, said, I said, who the hell is this Bill guy? You know, why does he get to go see a friend of Bill and I get to freaking, you know, keep digging. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. true. So he, he, and I said it with a bit of a toot and he looked at me and he goes, hey, wise guy. He goes, you keep up. Now he had, he has obviously was a close friend of mine and, and we worked hand in hand and he seen me go in and out of my bar business. And he was like, you keep going the way you're going and you'll be at those meetings. Don't worry about it. And, and, and uh, that was a huge, you know, that didn't sit in right away, but I was like, Ooh, something to think about it. And, you know, it was probably maybe a couple months after September 11th when I had enough of funerals and, and enough of digging down the pile and I was back in the firehouse working and started really thinking about how I just didn't have that, 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 that vinegar, that, that, you know, that feeling of like getting up in the morning, like, yeah, I'm going to the firehouse today and tonight I'm going to be at the bar and, and you know, I'm going to see so-and-so and we're going to have a good time. I didn't have that anymore. And it was all gone. And I realized that I, I let my body go and I was drinking a lot and I said, I, I'm missing something. So I needed to, um, get that competitive edge fired up again in me. And, and so I, well, I, what I tell people is I do this inventory check of my life. And I started to look back. When when was I happiest? What, what was I doing in my life when I was happiest? And and then let's start doing that again. And hey, at this point, I'm 35 years old, 36 years old. So I'm like, what was I doing? I mean, when I was thriving to be to play basketball at Iona, it, you know, I had a goal. I was I was I was tr- trying to get there. When you know, when I was told I couldn't open the bar, I I, I said I can make this happen. I had a goal. I, I wanted to get there. So. You know, that's what I started to do again. And I started getting into uh, endurance running. You know, I started with running. I started saying, hey, let's, I'm 35. I'm getting slow. I'm not playing basketball. It's like a way I used to. So I started running. Started pushing myself. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that period when you started dabbling in mini triathlons, I think. And, mm-hmm. and for some reason, I didn't see you as much. There was just a little period of time. Um I didn't see you quite as much. Well, let's see. It was after nine. Yeah, that makes sense. I I saw you more intermittently, and then <clears throat> I saw you, and you had lost. I never thought of you as as being overweight. By the way, I mean you just you looked like a regular guy who's uh, an ex athlete who's thirty five years old. It wasn't like you were way out of shape, but all of a sudden you were. But almost, I thought, oh, Matt lost too much weight. He's he's maybe is he going too far yeah. that way? And you're because you're really running. It was a lot of endurance stuff. And then I think you started to put weight on, but that was muscle, and you became this kind of like uh, 
you know, you shaved your head bald and you look like Mr. Clean. I mean, and, and, uh, <laughs> and you, and I remember you got, you had a, a seriousness. Um, it, like when you first did it, did you imagine, because I've been talking to groups lately about taking a step and like taking action and, and, you know, you don't have to know where it's going necessarily in the beginning. You just take that first step. Did you imagine when you first started running that you were going to uh, run an Ironman and, and do the New York City Marathon and, and be like top four firefighter for NYC firefighter. Like, did you did you know all of that, or did you kind of just go, no, I'm just kind of get in better shape in the beginning? Yeah, yeah, not at all. No, I, I had no idea that that is where it would take me. Um, I, I just knew that I felt better when I was doing it. And, you know, look, I didn't, you know, you may, you may not have seen me as much, um, you know, but I was making better decisions and I was still in the bars. I was still out. I was still, you know, going to parties and, and, and having drinks, but, um, you know, just maybe not taking it to that next level. Um, you know, not, you know, not making it to the diner. We used to hit the diner at four in the morning, you know, and then no one arises till five in the afternoon. Um, I, I stopped doing that, that lifestyle I didn't like. And, um, you know, you, you know, I, I, I remember distinctly, uh, there was like a, a run in central park, a five mile tune up that was right before the New York city marathon. And, uh, it was right during Halloween. So it was like a week before and I ran that as Mr. Clean in the Mr. Clean costume. I went to the bar to a party before the night before as Mr. Clean. And I, I literally woke up, put on my white running shorts. I had my white tight white shirt on. My eyebrows were still painted white, and I still had a fake urine in. And, and I went and ran that race, uh, you know, uh, 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 three weeks, two weeks before the New York City Marathon. So I, I still that. was, ha- I still found balance in the life, you know. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's that's one of the things I love about you is that like you you are you know you're super serious in in a certain ways, but you you. You know, maybe you lost it a little bit in that period you talk about. I didn't realize it at the time, but you've always had this kind of fun-loving, like you know, party on the move kind of attitude, and not necessarily like you know, drinking and all that, but just you, you know, you've kind of it goes back to what you said earlier about that kind of firing people up, you, you know, and, and that ability to laugh at yourself. I mean, the fact that you went running as Mr. Clean, it's just, you know, you were seriously training at that point, but you also brought an element of fun to it, which, um, which kind of is disarming. Um, so I want to, I want to, uh, kind of skip ahead to late 2005. Um, that's, that's the New York city marathon, November of 2005, you compete, you end up coming in, I believe it was number four for the NYFD, you qualify for Boston that following spring, which is a big deal. Uh, You had already done, you had already done an Ironman at that point, yeah? Correct. Let me just correct. So let's go back. Okay, so maybe we'll go back to that. It's FDNY, buddy. All right. Oh shoot! Come Did on. I just do that? Yeah, oh Come my on, God. Right? Yeah, Did I just do that? NYPD, <laughs> FDNY. All right. So. Oh uh, no! I can't. I can't. Um, I gotta delete that. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> no, no. You put it out there. Truth, <laughs> laugh at yourself, buddy. Um. 
Uh, yeah, so in June of 2005, I had I had completed my first Ironman. And you know, and then, then uh, in in July, and I'm sorry, in July of '09, uh, '05, my first Ironman, and then August, September, and October was focused on the marathon and qualifying for Boston. You know, at that point, Matthew, at that point, now everything was planned. Now everything was was more focused than just I'm running to get in shape. I'm running to, you know, clear my head or whatever. Now running has served its purpose. And, and those, those 45 minute runs in the park or were, were, were great for everything. Fitness, stress, health, mental health, everything. Okay. So, so apologies because we should really go back to that because an Ironman, just explain to everybody, a lot of people know what it is, but a complete Ironman, just give them the breakdown yeah. of the 2.2 mile swim, all of that. So complete Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, huh. a 112 mile bike. And then uh, you follow up with a marathon, 26.2 miles. Uh, you have 17 hours to finish. Uh, at, at 17 hours and one minute, you know, that doesn't count. Thank you very much for showing up. Um, you know, I think the meat of the people that do Ironman now are finishing between 13 and a half and 15 hours. Um, and the, uh, the upper echelon of the pack is, is, is under 12 hours. And what were you that first time in 2005? 11, 18. 11, I was 18 minutes. I think I finished in like 200th place up at Ironman Lake Placid, like 225th place, something like that. That's amazing. Congratulations. Out of, 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 of 2,500. 2,500 people there, I was, I was in the top 10%, so I was happy. And it was my first time. So I, I, I had taught, I had, you know, I, I wasn't a very great, good student growing up, but but I was a good student of people and, and, um, you know, when I did realize I was going to take this serious, I, I sought out leaders in the, in the industry. I sought out people who were, who were good coaches, good fits for me. And, and, and I had, uh, locked in with a really good coach for my first Ironman. And he basically told me flat out, he said, look, your first Ironman, you should not compete. You should complete. And even though I'm very competitive, so I want to do the best I could. I, I, I had that in my head. I understood that. So, um, could I have been a minute or two faster my first Ironman? Maybe, but I, I, I enjoyed the experience. I, I, in fact, people would come to me afterwards and say, I, I, I saw you out there and how could you be smiling at mile 18 on the run? And I was like, I was having a great time. Yeah. So it wasn't what? about my finish time for that race, but you know, that, that was going to change. I just knowing me, I, I was going to go for you know the grand prize, get the corner eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could do an entire episode just on training for an Ironman and, and completing it and what goes through it. Um, unfortunately, for our purposes here, I feel like we should skip ahead. But um, yeah. that's just an amazing accomplishment considering, you know, you were this guy that I knew from the bar who was, you know, used to play basketball. And all of a sudden, it wasn't that much, you know, that's like uh, four years, not even four years later. And you do complete an Ironman at, at 11, 18. It's crazy. So let's, so right after that, that was July, that November you run to the, you run the New York city marathon. Um, you place fourth, which is a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. and you, you're, you're getting ready and excited to, to start training for Boston in the spring and it's Christmas time. 
it's December 20th, I believe. Um, there was a transit strike in Manhattan, and we were back. I, I, at that point, lived in L.A. I think that was my first year, but we were back for Christmas. Um, I was actually supposed to see you that night before. There was mm-hmm. a transit strike in the city. The city was paralyzed. Um, the the MTA transit strike, Roger Toussaint, who I believe was the president, uh, yep. there was a strike, and, and these were the, – the, the subways were – not working, you, uh, what was it, only cabs from 96th Street down? Yeah, well, well cabs four, had to have, uh, had four, to have people. four customers, yep, yep. Yep, and so there were no, the, the city was really frozen, and it was the holidays. And um, Yeah, so, yeah you t- tack on, you know, an extra two million tourists, and, you know, you're, yeah, it was, it was a mess. The city was a mess for three days. Yeah, and just, just talk for a second before we go on about, you know, this, this strike and, and, you know, firefighters have, I believe, never struck in the history of uh, the institution, right? I mean, just correct. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a, there's a very old law on the books uh, called the Taylor Laws, and it, they prohibits civil servants from striking. Um, you know, so the, the transit union, they are civil servants, the men and women who, who ride the buses and, and trains and keep them going, maintenance, whatever. Um, so, yeah, he, he did break. Roger Toussaint called the order for his union to strike, and they did, and he broke the law of the terror laws, and he was found guilty of it. I think he spent four hours in jail. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so firemen have never gone on strike. Police have never gone on strike, and, and they can't. We're not we're not in, we're not in the transportation business. We're in the life saving business. Yeah, yeah. But so, um, but it but it was a contention of mine that that yes, people get hit by buses and and cars and have accidents every day, every second. And hey, this could have happened to me on any other time, but for me, you know, that bus was put on the street. Well, let's, go, let's just let's just explain that to everybody. So it's day three of the transit strike. Correct. Right? It's day three you, of the transit strike, and it's it's December twenty second, my last day of work at the fire academy, where I was at that point uh, detailed from my firehouse to the academy to train the new recruits. We call them probies, probationary firefighters. So I was training them. Not only was I training them, but now, like you talked about earlier, how I encompass myself in circles of of good people. You know, I left my firehouse on a one-year detail, and I went to the health and fitness unit. So now I'm with firemen. You know, there's 10,000 firemen in the city. So now I'm with firemen that I didn't know from other firehouses that shared the same interest in, in endurance running and fitness. And, and I was feeding off of them and learning off of them. And hopefully instilling some of that into the probies that were, you know, young 20-year-old probies, men and women, that I was training to say, hey, look, uh, it doesn't stop. When you leave the academy, you get to the firehouse. It's like, you know, we joke about it, but, you know, you go to college, you put on the freshman 15. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you leave the academy, you go to your firehouse, you put on your Pro B15 because you just, the, the lifestyle is different. And the dynamics of the firefighter, it's almost changed where now people are more like me, where they're health conscious. But when I walked in my firehouse in 1993, they're, they had just come from a fire. They're all black faced from soot and they're smoking cigarettes and cigars. 
and, and I didn't get it. I just never smoked, but I'm like, I don't get it. You just came from fire. You guys are hacking up lungs because you took in all the smoke. And now you, they're like, oh, this is clean smoke. <laughs> yeah. you know, that doesn't happen as much these days. But that, so that I encompassed myself with this group of, of guys that were in the fitness unit teaching the probies fitness. And uh, anyway, my day, that's what I had to do. I, that's what I enjoyed doing. It was my last day at that unit. And it had become um, so. Fitness had be, really become your purpose at this point, and and so so I was supposed to see you the night before at uh, at Debo's party, I believe it was. I did not make it. You get up that morning, December twenty second, at about five thirty six in the morning. It's maybe still dark out. It's freezing, sub zero temperatures. You 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 put on all this gear, and uh, you get on your bike to ride up to. Roosevelt Island, as I remember it, and you. Randall's Island. Oh, sorry, Randall's Island, and you. Uh, I'm messing them all up here, and <laughs> and uh, now you would have done that possibly anyway because you were, you know, you were looking for any opportunities for fitness at that point. But the streets are cleared. There's a bus that's being chartered by Bear Stern to from from a, I believe it was a church in Queens to come to come pick up guys that worked on the Upper East and Upper West Sides and bring them down to Wall Street for work because of the strike. This guy yes. has never has never driven a, a city bus or a, a big bus like this in the city. You're going yeah. up Third Avenue, right? Mm-hmm. And do you, do you want to describe it? Do you want me, me from what I know of it? But uh, it, Yeah, you know. I, I, I can describe it because, because uh, you know, I didn't know much about it because I, I think the mind blocked it out so I wouldn't remember it. But I, but I have since in the past, uh, it's now what, 15 years almost, um, uh, no, 12 years. I, I watched it. I watched it on security camera footage that I have, uh, someone had given, given to me and I watch it. So yeah, I, I got on my bike and you know what, man, I, I gotta be honest with you as, as badass as some people think I am. I hate to, I hate to just, I'm very honest. Like you said, I, I told you earlier, I laugh at myself and I, I like when, when a, a 16 or an 18 year old kid comes into my garage and works out me and thinks I'm badass. But I, but I, I do do disclaimers all the time and say, listen, I, I'm not that badass. Um, I would not have ridden my bike at, when it was 18 degrees and, and, tw- and 10 below wind chill factor. Uh, I was a, th- I was a 30 degree guy. <laughs> if, it, if, if it was below 30, I, I, I'm, I'm indoors. I'm indoors. I'm working out indoors and I'm still that way. Um, I had no choice but to ride my bike to work that, that day. You know, there was that, that was it. If I had taken my car, I wouldn't have gotten back into the city if the strike didn't. End. So I had, I was forced to get on my bike and uh-huh. ride up Third Avenue. It was only three mile ride. So I was like, all right, I geared, I over geared up. I packed up my stuff, got on, and I was going up to meet my crew early so we can go for a swim and and do some training. And um, boom, you know, uh, the bus. I'm going up the right side of Third Avenue, and the streets were super clear. It's five thirty eight in the morning, and um, just as I'm about at Fifty Second Street, which is four blocks from where I live, Third Avenue. I remember putting my left hand up as this white bus is just coming at me and like coming into my lane and I'm banging on the side of the bus. Like my right left, sorry, my left, my left arm is up high and I'm banging on a window and I'm holding on to my uh, handlebars. And then just boom in, in, in a nanosecond, I just collapsed and disappear uh, to go into that bus. The bus stops. And I guess he thought maybe he clipped the garbage bale. Maybe he thought he clipped the car that might've been parked on the corner. Um, 
And, you know, I, I can only imagine what this guy saw, how he felt when he saw my legs, you know, just yeah. sticking out from underneath the bus. I mean, it's described in the book and, and, you know, we don't even know. There's been so much uh, about it. I'd almost say that people can, can Google you to, to get the full scoop. But the, the gist of it for our purposes right now is that I remember my brother calling me, telling me about it. Um, it was, you know, we, we thought that was it for you. And I believe the doctors gave you a 5% chance to live at that point. Um, I was at the hospital that day. You weren't obviously weren't out. You were in, but there was a huge gathering of people. Uh, I don't think you even were conscious for another three weeks. And then, um, you know, you could go to the book guys and see the, the, um, the specifics, but I believe it was like 69 units of blood that you went through in the first, what, in the first 48 hours? 10 hours. 10, 10, hours? 10 or 11 hours, yeah. Man, from the internal ble- bleeding, uh, uh, your pelvis was, it's just, it's, it's really insane what you withstood. And, and to think that you not only, you know, did you survive, but what you eventually accomplished, um, I remember seeing you, I think that May, I was back in New York and I came to see you and no lie, you looked like an 80 year old man. You were emaciated, your eyes were hollowed out, uh, your face was sunken. And most importantly, I remember your, you know, what we've been talking about through this whole interview is this kind of, you have always have like a gleam in your eye and kind of like a, a, uh, this just this spirit. And I remember specifically thinking that was gone. It was like lights out for you in a way. And it was really, it was sad to see in a way because your humor was stripped from you. It it was, it was really a dark period. Um, Could you, could you go into, you know, we're skipping around a little bit here, uh, but just go into a little bit of like the, that, that darkness, before your mom kind of um, mm-hmm. that that period, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I got yeah. you. Yeah, so yeah, look, I mean, uh, I think I woke up five or six weeks later. You know, I was told what happened to me, and um, look, it, that what you just described, you know, the fire that burned inside me was out, um, and. and I had no idea what my life was going to be like, what my future held. I knew I survived. You know, I knew I survived. Um, I didn't know what kind of quality of life that I was going to lead. And I led a, I led an, a life full of quality. I really did. You know, every moment was quality time. And, um, it, it was taken away from me and it, it took me a, a long time, but I, I like to tell, I, I describe it as, as the, the, the old school pilot lights in, in your stove, you know, the old school gas stove, that pilot light in the middle. So the center of the stove was always a little warm because the pilot light was always on, you know, and all you yeah. needed to do was turn, turn the burner for the one that you wanted on, turn the knob and boom, you had fire. That's the human spirit. That's my analogy to the human spirit. We all have this pilot light inside of us and it, someone has to turn those knobs on. Now, 
when you're in a bad place. When you're in a good place, when I was before the accident, you know, I had all burners on all the time. I was ready to go. And now, you know, I don't even know if I could even see the knobs to turn it on. Yeah. So, you know, there was an incident with mom where that happened. We could talk about it later. But when I, when I was in this dark place and, and I, and I saw no future, I saw a dismal future. I, I did, started to think about, and this is where, this is where I was a detriment to myself. I, I couldn't see past the, um, external fixators that were coming through my chest to hold my pelvis together or the third external fixator coming through my leg to keep my left leg together. Cause I was basically cut in half and I, I couldn't see past that, Matt. Um, and, and that's where things got really bad. That's where things got dark. I, I, you know, I, there was no one that we knew that has been through something that I was going through and lived. Yeah. So for me, um, the unknown of, of my future was, was, was what was holding me back. And that was, you know, really consuming my thoughts and whether, whether they were all good or bad uh, for better, you know, I, I don't like to say that I thought I would kill myself, but I most certainly day after day for a good part of six months to a year, wished I never lived. Yeah, that's it's powerful to hear, for, especially from a guy like you who's got such a huge life force. But what, what I'm what I'm hearing now, it's it's the way you're saying it now. It's it just kind of really brings home to me the idea that our our thoughts and our vision of what could be is is so much more important than the actual physical situation because you know on on paper you really shouldn't have been able to do all the things that you've done since then but it it sounds like something clicked in you where you said i i'm not going to allow this to be i'm just going to imagine a brighter future and and your mind kind of transcended the the situation would you agree with that one hundred percent, Matt. I'll go. I'll go just a step, a day back on paper, according to some of the top surgeons in in New York at the time, let alone whether they were top in the country. I should be dead. You know how? How about how about after after making a recovery and after you going back and sitting down with a doctor as now a friend and saying, "Hey, I don't understand how you do this," and he says, "Do what?" I go, how did, how did you walk into an operating room, me lying on the table, the mess that I was in, how, how, how do you even begin to think about how you're going to save my life? And he goes, I didn't. And I said, what? And he said, I didn't. I, I was in the room with 12 residents and you were merely an academic exercise. I said to them, what would you do for this young man if he was going to live? Wow. And, and I'm, I'm going, Doc, I'm, I'm right here. What are you talking about? What, how can you? He goes, I'm just telling you the truth. He goes, Matt Long should not have lived. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's the first time that that was ever said to me. 
it was obviously I was already recovering and doing well, but that's when it, what I had accomplished or the mindset that had switched over, that's when I realized how powerful the human spirit was. That's how I realized, you know, here I had this, this renowned medical professional telling me, <laughs> I didn't go in that room thinking I was going to save you. He goes, uh, you should have died. He goes, that's, 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 a, that's a fact. Every doctor in the hospital that worked on you knows that. So and I was what, like, wow. That, yeah. What is, what does that do, you know, for people that are listening to this story, what does that do to you in terms of, you know, people talk about keeping your, your death in mind, you know, the, the, the certainty that eventually we're all going to die. If you keep that in mind, it kind of keeps you focused on, on how to really live. Now, when you've actually been there on the death's door, knocking on the door, wh- how does that, um, one, how does that shape you day to day these days? And, and also, what advice could you give to people that are listening with, that, that hopefully don't have to go through the experience that you went through, but kind of lessons that you learned from that where you go like, oh, don't sweat the small stuff or whatever it is that you kind of life philosophies you, you've picked up from that? Um, you know, the, the, the biggest, the biggest thing that I picked up from it is that your, your, your mind, your thoughts, you are in more control of your life than you think. Yeah. You, you, your your thoughts, your mind, your willpower, your human spirit will get you out of the darkest places, will get you to the triumphs you want, or will keep you in the darkest places, or keep you from your successes. So that's that's it. I mean, I, there's no magic pill. There's no nothing. That 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 is that is one hundred the truth, and it's for everyone. I just had to have have to have this, you know, life threatening major catastrophe but you know I, I i get people calling me up who break their leg yeah and you know i i also am, am very you know i i also have a, a unique way of just saying it how it is and i'm like sometimes i want to you know i got a, an email from a firefighter who broke his leg like you know can you can you come and talk to me i'm in a bad way uh, and I'm like, oh God, yeah, I go talk to her. and there he is sitting on his couch in a cast. I go, what, what happened? He goes, ah, I broke my tib. I go, you broke your leg. I said, you, you're going to be back to work in three months. Yeah, yeah uh, you know. So every, I do understand yeah. that everyone's different, but here's this guy who, he's a big, strong firefighter, who broke his leg, and, and couldn't his own thoughts and. He let he let the worst case scenario for a broken leg control that moment in time for him, and, and that put him into a bad bad place. That put him into a state of depression. So, so the lesson and the biggest thing that I learned from this is that yes, you, your your thoughts, your mindset, your willpower, your human spirit, your fire inside you controls the outcome of your life more than you think. Yes, there's external factors. There's there's a, there's things that keep you from, from getting where you want to be. You know, hey, look, how long have you been not struggling because you're, you're fortunate enough to have a career, but how long have you been grinding with your acting? How long have you been really at it? How many interviews did you walk out of? Boom. 
didn't get yeah. it because, you know, the other guy was an inch taller, an inch shorter, you know. It, it, there are other factors. But if your willpower, if your mindset was like, well, sc- screw it. First audition, I went on, I didn't get it. Let, let me try if I could be, you know, I'll be a bartender again for the rest of my life. You know, you obviously forged through and, and have put together a successful career. And it, that's, that's what I learned. That's 100% what I learned. I said, even today, my life isn't perfect. I have things that I deal with that are related to my accident, but I get up every morning and I, and I do it. Yeah. It's so, it's so, you know, you hear this. I, I feel like I've been having this conversation with a bunch of people lately. I've been reading about it. I've been listening to interviews about it. But to talk to someone that I know, that I've known well for a long time, who's actually gone through it. I think I think people hear exactly what you just said, and they go, yeah, that's great. And, you know, yeah, my thoughts control it. But, okay, you know, really? But to hear it from you it has a different weight because of what you've gone through because people can't really dispute that. I mean, just, just what you're saying that, 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 you know, someone else has a broken leg and lets it, but you know, I'm thinking of what is it that brings me down in my life? And there are times, and you're not proud of those moments when some little, you know, obstacles can put you into a, a state of being frozen and then you hear a story like yours and you go, you know, yes, you had a period where you were frozen, um, but you you kind of just turned it around. And, and what you're saying, it's that it's that kind of like, OK, it is what it is. Now what? What, mm-hmm. what are my what are my choices? I either roll over and die or I fight and and have a, as fulfilling of a life as I can. And then eventually I die, but at least I've done a lot more. I'm not going to, why am I going to roll over and die right now? Yeah. 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 And, and look, and, and I, I, you know, I, I, I make no apologies for my uh, personality. Okay. Um, you know, if, if you ask me I'm, if I'm the best, I'm going to tell you I'm the best. Okay. Cause, cause, cause why would you want to be second best? Okay. No, I, I know damn well I'm not the best basketball player. I'm not the best motivational speaker. Or I'm the best guy on the stage. But when I step on stage to speak, there is no one better, man. And that mindset, that attitude will deliver the best speech to that audience in that hour. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so I, I understand like when, you know, I got a teenage daughter and, and then the kids that I train, the boys that have come here and some, some college, female college athletes I train, you know, I understand that they, they'll have bumps and they'll have things where they do think that life is over. You know, they broke, I, I felt it. I felt it when I was in my twenties in the bar. Like I said, how many times did we sit at the bar and I said, Matt, give me another one. Can you believe we broke up? You know, can you believe she doesn't want to go out with me? And, you know, and we had our talk, yeah. you know, you know, that's life. You know, that that's life. And, and you need to, to forge forward towards every obstacle and challenge. Open as many doors as you can. Open them thinking that when I get through here, I'm going to succeed. When I get through here, I'm going to accomplish what I came to accomplish. And as long as you're continually going through doors forward, 
you 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 create this track track record of success, right? I mean, yeah. You you may open twenty more doors than me. But if we if we if if I went through ten, I have to look back. There's ten doors behind me. I'm like, hey, look, look, I didn't do too bad. Yeah. So you know, I I think I think the like the biggest message I give to my my kids and the kids that I train, I say, listen. Every, everyone has bad days. As your broken toe to you is going to be different than the broken toe to me. You, you, uh, what's happening up here in, in the brain is going to control your outcome. Once you acknowledge, once you recognize, once you accept your adversity, now put the plan together right away. Don't let it beat you up. How am I going to beat it? How am I getting through it? Go. Done. Hmm. But too many people, and, and I've talked to people who've had accidents as bad as mine. And some of them were asking for help, but weren't ready for help because they were angry about the bus driver or the truck driver or the car driver who hit them. You know, now whether they were texting, whether they made the wrong turn, whether they ran a stop sign, um, didn't give the the cyclist uh, enough room on the lane, on on the road, they were angry. Uh, And, I said to them, I, you know, I, I never was angry with my, the guy who hit me. Never. I, I was never angry with him. I never met him. I know my parents have. But I I hope that he knows that I'm doing better. I hope he knows that I survived. Because what he had to go through mentally for the first couple of weeks or whatever had to be awful. And, I, and not for one moment that I think that he sat out that morning saying, hey, if I get lucky today, I'm going to run over a firefighter on a bike. Yeah. So, so the anger, the anger part is your first obstacle when something bad happens to you. Don't be angry with the person who did it. Don't be angry with the, the, the underlying causes of it. Acknowledge, accept your adversity and plow through it. That's what I tell people. And what about, what about the, your faith, I mean, you're Catholic. I mm-hmm. believe you have strong faith. Um, you're talking about forgiveness. You're talking about letting go of the anger. Um, how have you been since since 15 years ago um, with Roger Toussaint, for example? I mean, in a way, you know, we talk about all these things, and, and this podcast is full of these stories where people's worst nightmare happens and because of the way they reacted to it the the way you've reacted to it it actually ends up being the greatest opportunity of their life and becomes their life's purpose um have you been able to in a way forgive that uh i mean you don't have to accept it but have, have you gotten past the anger with you know, the strike being called in the mm-hmm. first place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've gotten past the anger. And, and like I said, it was part of it. I, I, I acknowledge it and let it go. Um, he made a bad decision. I'm not going to, I'm never going to change my mind on that. He, 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 as a leader, made a bad decision. And that decision caused a lot of people pain and anguish. I just happened to be the guy to get hit by the bus. So, so as, as, and, and it's not a political, but a, 
uh, a business decision, a you know struggle for his men. He made the bad decision. He crippled New York for three days. You know, if I was the leader of the the transunion, there's got to be other way to do that. You 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 just don't do it. So so I'll never forget. I'll never change that mentality. But I'm not angry with him. I'm not, I'm not angry with the union for going on strike. I'm not angry for the guys who are trying to fight for the better wage or whatever. I have no anger towards that. And you're right. So much good has come into my life. I, sometimes I think back. And, and Matt, this is, I, I'm being so truthful with you right now because we are close friends. And, and, you know, sometimes it's harder to talk to people that know your story and know you about it. I'd rather sit there and talk to a perfect stranger about it. They can ask me all they want. But Matt, I couldn't tell you what my life would be like today if the accident never happened. Okay, I don't know what my life would be like. You know, we, we, we're going by the seats of our pants. Doing, do, what, do I know that I'd always, I always thought I'd be successful. I always thought I'd be happy. I always thought I'd be comfortable in life. I always thought that, wished it, wanted it. I knew that would happen. But would I be as happy? Would I be as lucky? Would I be as successful? Would I have touched and helped so many people? Would I have had a purposeful life? And that, that being said, right there, one night in one of my talks, a woman raised her hand and said, knowing what you know now, if you can go back in time, would you change the outcome of that morning? And I said, without hesitation, I could not do that. I'd have, knowing what I know now, I'd have to go through it all over again. Because my life is awesome. So many good things have happened. I've, I believe that there's people out there that I've never met. And maybe there's one that will listen to this podcast and say, holy crap. You know, it's time for me to turn the burner on Matt long, just turn my burners on and I'm changing the course of my life. No more just negativity, but I believe there are people out there that I shown a way to survive a way to get over their hurdles, get through their doors. And, and, and I believe that's why I got in that greater shape. I believe that that's why I became an Iron Man. I believe that's why that, that like you said, that I, I, I was just, I was fit. I believe that I was fit so I could survive, so that I can help someone who is not as strong. Yeah. You know, and it may sound, I don't know, I don't have a time. And I don't, you know, I teach group fitness now, and and, and I can't do half the exercises. I, I look at the program that I have to teach, and I go, oh, I can't do that because I have a paralyzations on my right side. How am I going to show 26 people in the class how to do that move and how to motivate them to do it? And I do it. I make fun of myself. I laugh at myself. I say, oh, leave, you know, leave this one for the crippled guy. <laughs> you know, everybody laughs, chuckles. I get through it. And I tell them I like talking about myself. I tell them that I'm a, a confidence has never been a problem in my life. You guys realize that yet? And they laugh and they get through their exercises. I believe there's someone in that class every minute that I'm helping to show that they can get over what they're trying to get over. And if, if that accident never happened, then, then that's one person I didn't help. Yeah, it's 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 just the recurring theme here. The the it might be painful, but sometimes you got to go. Oftentimes, you have to go through the fire in order to find 
that thing that you're here to do, you know? And like you said, you had a, you had a great life before. And if you never knew this life, you know, was going to happen, you would have gone on and I'm sure things, who knows how, how it all would have turned out, but this is, you, you know, it, it is, it's a life of purpose. I feel like you have, um, you found something and, and not only that, I mean, could you talk about, well, two things. One, you say you've taught people how to survive. The interesting thing with you is you didn't just survive. You went back, you had a colostomy bag for two years attached to you. And people, mm -hmm. we don't go into it necessarily because people go, I, I really suggest read this book or, or uh, listen to the book, whatever, go, go watch what you can on Matt and you'll get a better sense of this. But from, from that to then three years after that New York City Marathon, so the 2008 New York City Marathon, and you run it again. And then the 2009, I believe, Lake Placid Ironman, you complete that under under 17 hours, yeah? Is that that's yeah. the cutoff? And and yeah. that's an incredible story. So you didn't just survive, you you thrived. And then not only that, talk about what's happened to you personally. You know, talk about your uh, your relationship because I think that's to me the, the the probably the best silver lining of your story is the family you have right now. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little I bit agree. about that. Um, you know, so, so yeah, you're right. I, 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 so survival was one thing. And then the, let me just recap that the, the, the marathon comeback and the Ironman comeback was for me. Yes, I believe that I did it a little bit to, to thank the efforts of my support group that prayed and donated blood, to thank the efforts of my uh, health care providers, my therapists, everyone, to let them know that they're, 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 their sacrifices didn't go unnoticed and do, do, they don't go unrewarded because they really enjoyed me finishing that. But but truthfully, it was it was for me so I could mentally um, recover and say that the bus didn't take me away. They didn't didn't take me and who I was, that competitive guy. Um, so I needed to like go back full circle. I needed to do that marathon. It, I went from three hours and 13 minutes to seven and a half hours. I went from 11 hour Ironman to, to 1658. So I just needed those two things, those two things to like, you know, bring back into my life. And, and that, and from that moment on, then I said, okay, what do I do? And you, you lead with, you know, my relationship, you know, I, I, I followed up with many of my doctors and after my Ironman, I went back to tell them, you know, I, I succeeded. I did it, showed them pictures, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, I said to my one doctor, I said, um, you know, now I, I, don't, I don't, now what do I do? Yeah. I said, you know, I'm still, you know, I, I walk with this limp and I got some digestive issues and uh, things don't work the way they're supposed to work. Uh, you know, just go ahead, read, Google me. I was crushed. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm just happened to be talking to that doctor, you know, in charge of that thing that's not working. <laughs> and here I am, this, this, you know, wannabe playboy running around Manhattan firefighter. Um, and, uh, you know, he tells me, he tells me to get a dog. <laughs> and at first I was, I was like, I was pissed. Uh, I was like, you just tell me to get a dog. And, 
he, he's like, yeah, they could be great friends. You know, you really should think about it. So I was like, all right. So I did. I, got, I went and got a dog. I still have that dog. Eight years. Um, it was the best thing I ever did. I put a, I put all my time and training into training the dog. You know, because I, I wasn't running or, or swimming or biking as much anymore. You know, yeah. I, I did what I had to do. So I, I had a lot of free time. You know, I trained Ironman 20 hours a week. Um, so I had a lot of free time. And um, I got a dog, great dog. We, we developed, I, she's, she's just awesome. So, but, but yes, that factor that I wanted in my life, that relationship, that Mrs. Long, you know, my, my other half, my better half. Um, I, I, I gave up on that dream. I gave up on it. Uh, I, I just, I just didn't think it would ever happen. I don't think I, I think the confidence that I always had, and we joke about it in the book, you know, the bottom of the sea, which is, but it's true. It, it, that might, Matt, Matt, that, we go back. I'm sorry. Go, the book goes back and forth. So this, this story has got to go back. And yeah, forth. that's fine. That's but fine. Remember, remember how we talked about that? I'm like, you know, what are you wearing today? Oh, I pumped out a little sea on. Yeah, yeah, we had just to describe it to everybody listening. So there were these, I don't know what kind of, you know, it was like some kind of promotional vodka or something like that. And they had these like squiggly bottles that were slightly different colors. And they, they looked, they were kind of like eye catching on the bar, behind the bar. And one night, Maddie comes in and, and takes it and pretends it's like perfume. He's, he's spraying it on him, says it's a bottle of C, it's a bottle of confidence. So that was kind of the running joke for a while. You know, you need yeah, some yeah. Yeah. We could, If we could bottle it up, everyone would be in good shape. You know? yeah. Walk, yeah. Into, walk into the room like you're supposed to be there, and, and people will believe you're supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway. Um, uh, so you had lost I, I, that I, after. I lost that, that confidence in, in, in that. Yes, physically, I pushed myself, got myself back. But, but what was I really looking for my whole life? I was looking for that person. I was looking for the person that you found, that, that Artie found that all our friends were finding and, and going on to the next chapter of their lives. And I had lost the confidence and lost the edge for that, thought it would never happen. Um, went out on a few dates post-accident. Um, some were girls I knew before, and, you know, some, some were good relationships, some were just, I feel, I don't know. Um, anyway, and then randomly, a friend calls me up and says, you know, what's going on in your life? And I told him, you know, pretty much um, on the social side, I said nothing. And he says, I have a, uh, I met a girl the other day and I would like you, like you to introduce you to her. And I said, well, why does she want to meet me? He's like, she doesn't. I didn't talk to her yet. <laughs> I'm clear, clear with you first. <laughs> I was like, oh. I was like, oh, okay. So he told me about her. He said she was, just had gotten divorced at two, two, uh, young girls, six, uh, four and six years old. And, um, I just thought, that you guys would uh, be a good match. She played college basketball. You played college basketball. She, you know, she's a real go-getter. She works hard. I'm like, all right. I said, if she wants to go out with me, I'll go out with her. And, um, yeah, it was the night before Thanksgiving. We went bowling, had a blind date. We had a great time. And it, it became like a bi-weekly date, two dates a week for a few months. And we both knew the direction it was going in. And very, very quickly we're married and now we have three girls. Yeah. Which, which is, which, which each, each uh, yes, my, my baby girl, it has the specialness of, of being something that I co-created. Um, but, but all three of the girls are, are, and my wife, so there's four girls are a tremendous blessing. Something I never thought I had post accident. 
Yeah. It's it's such and, a yeah, it's such a great story that the because you always were. I mean, it, you know, it, it talks in the book about you know, you're this playboy and everything, but you were kind of. Uh, I always thought of you as this. There was a dichotomy where you were partially you were doing that, but you were always kind of longing for love, uh, like like a real relationship. And your parents have been married. I don't know what is it like sixty years or something. I don't know what what it is. It's your how long have your parents been married? Uh, yeah. they're they're about fifty fifty five years now. Fifty four, yeah. fifty five years. Yeah, now. and you, so it, it always felt important to, to you. So it's it's just it's it's such a great cap. It's not even a cap. It's kind of the point of the story in a way. I I feel like you, you know, you were almost broken down and taken apart physically, and in the process you you kind of were cracked open and your and your real essence was able to come out and then here you know she meets you when you're in that stage and you're more open to it and you know you can't play you can't script it you can't script it it, it just happens no. you know and when when i met her um you know i i, I told her everything like day date date one i i, I put out put it all on the table now, she, she had been honest with me and said she Googled me. And she's, once she read, like, the, you know, it's, very, it's widely publicized and, and talk, talked about. So once she read the severity of the accident, she stopped and she said she'd rather hear from me. So she, she, she only knew that I was run over by a bus. Yeah. So, you know, I told her everything. I told her everything I went through, everything that happened. I told her this is this is what works, this is what doesn't work, this is what I'll have to do if this wants to work. You know, I, so I don't think I'll be able to have a family. I don't think I'll be able to have this, this, and that. Um, I, here's where I and I. This is day one. This we're bowling, laughing, talking about my insecurities. This is what I am now insecure. Of. So you know, I, I, one of one of the look my 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 rectum was torn out of my body. My, my, I was cut in half. Uh, I have, you know, nerve, nerve signals going to, um, my digestive tract, my colon, all that. Stuff. Like, so I, 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 the normal bodily functions that people, you know, just get up and go to the bathroom, uh, that's not how I operate. So I am constantly thinking about where I am, where I am, where I got to be so that I don't embarrass myself or my children, or my wife. And here I am on a date right before she becomes my wife. I'm on a date, and I'm going, so listen, here's the deal. What I'm worried about right now, I know I'm not going to poop myself. I said, but, you know, I might go up to that lane. Take this guy who has a has a bad limp and, and, a, and a one leg. I, I went bowling. I'm like, geez, I'm, what am I doing? <laughs> anyway, so I'm limping up to the lane to throw my ball. And I said, so just sit back here, because I'm really afraid that I might just, like, you know, blow a bad fart in your face. I'm like, <laughs> she's like, what? <laughs> and it's our first date. I'm like, yeah, it's just, they just come out. I have no idea when they're going to come or how it's coming. They just come out. And, yeah. uh, and she's like, uh, oh, okay. You know, she laughed. We laughed and, and we had a great time. I was, I was very open with her and she was very open to hear it and didn't judge. Yeah. You know, she, but, she didn't that's, judge what me. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, you know, you have this, when you were younger, you're doing a whole. It's it's like uh, you're putting your best foot forward, trying to make yourself look cool, trying to do whatever it might be, and and 
there's a humility that you gain through this whole experience that I think is, you know, just kind of skipped through all the BS when you finally meet the the person that you're going to be with and and you don't have to do that you you choose not to do that anymore to put up this facade and yeah. and you know ironically yeah. that's the thing that works you know mm-hmm. um, hey, hey you know, i i got i look this is not a an x-rated story but i i got a funny story for you so talk, let's talk about make it funny yourself but you'll like, I think, and maybe your listeners will, will like it. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but so here, here, let me tell you. So, so, so you, we talked, you mentioned the colostomy bag. So I have the colostomy bag for two years, right? And, you know, that two year time period, uh, I had multiple follow ups with my colorectal doctor and you know, my surgeon. And he's like, look, you know, we, there's, we don't know. We, we don't know if we could reverse it. We just, we have to see what kind of function you get back. Um, and, and here's, here's the two s- scenarios. He goes, we're going to schedule for surgery. This is one of my last surgeries. He goes, and I'm going to totally reconstruct your sphincter. He goes, I think I can do it. If it doesn't work, I'm going to simultaneously put in a special request. If they could do that for things that are not approved in America, he goes, I have performed the surgery in Singapore. And I could put in an electronic nerve that will cause, send a signal to your muscle, your sphincter muscle, and keep you contracted so that your bodily fluids don't come out. And then when, you know, twice a day or once a day, you just go to the bathroom, you you hit this button that's going to be under your skin and you're in your back. You hit that button and that muscle will relax and you'll go to the bathroom. And when you're done, you hit that button and it will contract and it will stop you from going to the bathroom. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. Uh, so I got looking forward to me, you know, whatever. I wasn't super stoked. It wasn't like this was going to happen. So I go in for the surgery and he's very pleased at what he did with the muscle. So I, he said, look, you are not, I am in, you're a marathon, right? He goes, now I have some training for you. This way, this way it gets funny and disgusting. <laughs> he go, so he goes, he goes, uh, now that everything is healed, I can't reverse you right now because you've been, you know, you had a classroom for two years and what I did there that we don't know, you know, how, how much waste your, your body can hold. And he goes, we need, we need to train it. We need to train it to work again. So I'm like, okay, what are you getting at? He's like, well, he's like, here's the deal. You're going to take cream of wheat and you're going to mix it to, you know, like a muddy kind of consistency. And when it cools, you're going to take this enema and you're going to, or in this, in, uh, I don't know what it was, uh, this device, and you're going to squeeze it into your colon. And you need to hold it as long as you can. And I need you to tell me how much you put in. Uh, so I had a whole journal. Yeah. How much cream, cream of wheat, it has to be measured. Here's your milliliters and how long you held it. And I was like, I was like, you're kidding me, Doc, right? Like, you're freaking kidding. You're kidding. This is a joke, right? This is like, really? This is this is medicine. This is modern day medicine. He goes, he goes, yeah, this is what you got to do. So I was like, holy Christ. So now he goes, well, we're going to do it here for you first to show you what we do. (laughs) 
So this this doctor, this doctor who, who you know, like I said, you you don't want to say I'm the second best doctor. He was he's the best. He's he's my man. So he says to me, "All right, my team's going to come in and we're going to you know we're going to make the batch up. We're going to get you to hold this as best you can." So he brings in a team of residents, six girls, six good looking girls from Singapore. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm a mess, okay, because my admin is still open. Uh, I still have that gaunt look in the face. You know, I'm not really exercising outside. So, so I'm still probably, you know, I went from 178 to 122 in this accident. We've been touching on that earlier. But I, so I lost 50 pounds. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not there yet. And I have this big, because I have a colostomy bag, I also have this big herniation that the size of a football encompass my belly. So I'm, I'm not in, t- in my A game at all. And I got these beautiful residents, doctors, squeezing cream of wheat into my butt. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I'm like, this is, di- di- all dignity's out the window. This is just, life is at a new low. I'm like, all right, great. He's going, how do you, how you feeling? I'm a good doctor. Yeah, I'm good. It's great. It's great. So he basically puts me on a train. He talks to me like an athlete. He says, Maddie, you need to do this three days a week. And you did it. So, well, I, I did. I, I enlisted yeah. help because I couldn't do it on my own. And that was the first week and a half of struggle. Who do I finally have the nerve to ask? Um, but I did ask a, a nurse friend. And th- that was taken care of three days a week. And I did that for six months. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's easy to um, listen to an interview with someone who's gone through what you've gone through and, you know, Post accident, and we go Ironman, and, and and you know marathon, and married, and kids, and it's all, you know, it's all so great. Uh, but hearing a story like that, and just letting people, you know, like you said, who knows how listeners do? They want to hear that? Do they not? I don't know, but I think it's it's important because what you've actually been through, the part, you, you know, it's not sexy. It's not like you know, you, it's it's very tough and and you go into it in detail in the book about um just some of the things that you had to deal with that the the rest of us never think about and uh you know i'll i'll wind it down because we're close to an hour and a half but i I want i wanted to ask you while i'm listening to this this there's this recurring theme of like I keep thinking like you know God's got a great sense of humor like that he that, he, that this is like what you were put through but I what I wonder is like how has this made you a better dad now because I feel like you you've had to experience such humility through this experience that you you must somehow bring that into your parenting with your three girls what what do you think about that yeah, it, it, yeah, one hundred percent. It goes back to what we talked about earlier. Is what I try to, what I try to tell my girls is, is the big, the biggest thing I tell them, and they get, they get mad because I'm repetitive on it, but that's the key. I said, girls, when I turned the corner, and I could talk to you right now, Matt, at, at, about what I went through with, 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 with laughter. I am not making light of someone who has a classroom bag because I was lucky to get it reversed. I'm not making light of someone who had to train their, their colon and their rectum to, and then their sphincter to operate again. You know, it, it's, it, it's just what I had to do. And I did it. 
and I talk about it and remember it now with laughter because that, that helps the healing process. And, uh, you know, you, you never know who's next. You never know who's going to have the next issue, whether it's cancer, whether it's a, uh, an accident, whether it's a disease, whatever the issue is going to be. And I, so I told my, I tell my daughters all the time, like, girls, you, you need to be able to laugh at yourself. You really do. And being able to laugh, me being able to laugh with you about that situation, you know, it, and share it with, with hundreds of people listening, hopefully thousands. It's, it, it's, it's key. It's key to be able to laugh at yourself, to be unoffendable, to be able to let go of, 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 you know, I'm not saying don't sweat the small stuff, sweat the small stuff, sweat everything, but accept it, embrace it, figure out what it's going to be. And, and I wouldn't be here talking to you as your dad if I didn't do that. So, you know, my, my 16 year old, she's turning 16 and she, she gets it now. She gets it. We talk about the bus. We talk about a lot of things and you know, they've, they've both read the book and then they joke about me chasing girls all the time. So they're saying, basically don't date you. I go, basically don't date me. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to preface with you, with what you, you're right, Matt. I was, yeah, look, I, I like to think that I was a bit of, a bit of player and a bit hopeless romantic. Yeah. Yeah. You were kind of both. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't find the right mix, the right one. And it, it just should have been that I waited and let things happen. I didn't let things happen. I always tried to make things happen when it came personally. But, but what I tried to, 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 to end it with you is like that. Cause me and you could probably talk for another three hours. Um, and that would just not be good for listeners. <laughs> um, is, is I try to teach my kids to be, to be unoffendable, to, to, to take a problem, take an issue, find the, the good side of it and, and laugh at it and, and just go through it with the mustard you need to get through that next door. Things will always get better on the other side. Yeah. That's a great place to, to end it. Um, thank you. Thank you for, I wish we were sitting down in person because I feel like I had to like, you know, let you finish your stories and I can't laugh. I want to laugh at a lot of the things you're saying, but doing it remotely affects it. But I, I really thank you for taking the time to sit down, tell the story, um, let people hear this. I think, I think people will be inspired. I don't know how you can't have a ton of takeaways from what you said. And, um, before we go, just let people know where they can find you. If people want to follow you, I've already talked about the long run, which is the book that Matt did with a guy named Charles Butler. You can do the audio version, which is read by this incredibly silky smooth voiced guy named Matt Del Negro. Um, <laughs> thank you for that hookup, Matty. Um, or where can they find you on social media? All right. Uh, well, on Instagram, I'm at 43 long on Twitter at max long run. And, um, you know, I have my website is mattlongspeaker.com. Uh, I take emails from there. Uh, and yeah, you, you, you see the whole link there. Just to give you a little shout out for that. So he, you, you speak uh, corporate events, college events, what kind of events, if anybody is looking to book you and bring you to their organization? No, I, I've, I've spoken at anything you can imagine. I've actually did a, a few college, uh, did two college commencement speeches and spoke at uh, many uh, corporate events, high school sport organizations, so sporting teams, 
so yeah, any, anything, uh, you know, just to, to keep people on track and, and you know, I'm not a, a motivational speaker where I'm going to get you all fired up in the room and jump up and down. But, uh, but it's, it, it, I tell my story from the heart, just like I spoke to you for the last hour and a half. Yeah. So it, yeah, I'm, I'm with WME speakers bureau. So I'm on their site as well. Okay. Okay. Great. I really appreciate you having me on Maddie. Yeah, Matt, you're, you're the best. I, I, uh, I love it. I think people are going to love hearing it. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. 